Many years ago now in the city of London, there was a well-known Methodist preacher by the name of Dr. W.E. Sangster. He was the minister at Westminster Central Hall. And by all accounts, uh, he was a godly man and he was very much a gospel man. And on one occasion, Sangster preached a very popular sermon and he gave it the title... Paul's magnificent obsession. He said that Paul had a magnificent obsession. His sermon was based upon two words of the apostle, found in fact in the majority of his New Testament letters. It was, of course, the expression, in Christ. In Christ. Paul's favourite definition of a true biblical Christian. If someone should ask this morning, Paul, what is a Christian? He would immediately reply, a person who is in Christ. It refers, of course, to that wonderful, living, loving, personal union that we have with the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We were once in Adam who fell, but now we are in Jesus Christ who has triumphed. And once in him, in him forever, thus the eternal covenant stands in Christ, in Christ alone. And friends, did you know that Paul uses that little expression no less than 160 times? in these short 13 New Testament letters. Absolutely incredible. Quite clearly, a magnificent obsession. Well, now this morning I want to borrow Dr. Sangster's famous title. I'm sure he won't mind. He's long been in glory, in a state of perfection, so he won't mind. But I believe that it also perfectly applies and relates to another statement that Paul makes here in Philippians chapter 3. For as Paul comes to the climax of this autobiographical account of his life and his experience, he suddenly exclaims in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. What was Paul's magnificent obsession? I say it was clearly this, that I may know him. And of course by him, Paul is referring to the person of his wonderful saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, the interesting thing to notice here is that Paul wasn't writing these words as a new Christian convert. No, no, he was writing them as a mature Christian believer and an apostle. In fact, Paul had known Jesus Christ for 30 long years when he wrote these words. And yet even though three decades have now passed since his conversion on that Damascus road, 
Paul's obsessive longing and desire were exactly the same. That I may know him. Now as we take a look at Paul's magnificent obsession today, I want us uh, uh, firstly to notice the context in which it took place. The context in which this is found. And here in this rare autobiographical account of Paul's life and experience, you'll notice he begins by looking back over his past life, verses 4 through 9. And then he looks to the present, here in verse 10. And then finally, he looks away to the future, verses 12 to 14. So here in this one magnificent statement, we have summarised Paul's entire life, past, present and future. Now, it's just the first two of these that we're going to look at this morning for the sake of time. Uh, I will show compassion to you and uh, to the food in your ovens. So let's begin this morning by taking a look at Paul's past life. And you'll notice that this section is immediately introduced in verse 2 by a solemn and a serious warning. Paul suddenly holds up a warning sign in the church. And he says, look out. Look out. Literally, beware. Beware. I'm sure there are some of you here who can remember that uh, famous Australian wildlife conservationist uh, and wildlife expert, uh, the great uh, Steve Irwin. You remember he was nicknamed the Crocodile Hunter and they still show his programmes on TV on certain channels. And uh, you remember that whenever he came across a rather angry looking snake, or a cranky-looking croc, he would usually exclaim aloud in his own inimitable style, Danger! 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 Well, friends, that is exactly what the Apostle is doing here. He issues a threefold warning to the church. He says, look out for, look out for, look out for. Beware, beware, beware. But what exactly is this danger that Paul is warning the Philippians about and us this morning? Well, of course, it is the danger of false teaching and false teachers who had entered the Philippian church. And uh, these people were causing havoc amongst these uh, converts from the Gentile world in Philippi. And notice how Paul goes on to describe these false teachers. I mean, he's far from complimentary, is he? Paul would receive no medal today for diplomacy. Paul is positively scathing in his criticism of them. He begins by calling these people dogs. What a way to describe another human being. But Paul feels he needs to. And he's writing here under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. And he says, look out for the dogs. 
There are dogs here. And when he calls them dogs, well, he's not referring, of course, to these nice, cuddly, domesticated pets. Lovely, warm and cosy in our homes. No, no. He's talking about these wild, vicious, pariah dogs that roamed the countryside in those days, full of germs, full of disease, foaming at the mouth, throthing, and then snapping at your heels. Beware, look out for the dogs. And then he calls these people evildoers. Look out for the evildoers. He's referring to the same people. Oh, he says they may come to you with smooth words. They may come with a nice smile and a a handshake. But these people are positively evil. They've got evil only on their minds. And thirdly, he says, look out uh, for those mutilators of the flesh. He says these people are not harmless. No, no, they want to harm you physically. They want to damage you. They want to cut you. They will mutilate you. They are butchers. Now you may be thinking, well, why on earth is Paul getting so steamed up at this point? In this beautiful letter, he writes to a Christian church. He began the chapter with, rejoice in the Lord. And now he's getting steamed up. Why is he so hot under the collar? Why does he vent his spleen on these people? And the simple answer, of course, is because what these men were teaching the Philippians was no valid alternative point of view that you could take or leave. It was positively harmful. It was poison. It was noxious. They must avoid these people and their teaching like the plague. He issues a red warning flag. Beware, beware, beware. You see, these people were preaching another gospel Another Jesus. They were distorting the true gospel of Christ. It was as serious, friends, as that. You see, these men were Judaizers. Or as uh, Luke describes them, you remember in the book of Acts, as men who were from the circumcision party. And these were basically Jewish men who supposedly had embraced the Lord Jesus as their Messiah. But the problem was that there was no change in their lives. And uh, there was no change in their thinking and in their teaching. It was exactly the same, the old Jewish religion of bondage and misery. You see, they were still clinging very much to Moses and the Old Testament law. And now they were demanding that these new converts from the Gentile world in Philippi, that if they were to be saved, if they were to be fully-fledged Christian, they must firstly become Jews, they must submit to the rite of circumcision, and they must obey all the laws and the regulations found in the books of Moses. You see, it was another gospel, wasn't it? It was another Jesus. They were denying the true gospel of Christ. Basically, what they were doing was they were denying the sole sufficiency of Christ alone for salvation. It was a message of Christ plus. Jesus 
plus circumcision or Jesus plus obedience and conformity to all the laws and the rituals and the ceremonies of the Old Testament scriptures. And friends, once you put a plus sign after Jesus Christ, you are left with no gospel, no good news, no hope at all. Because Jesus Christ alone is the saviour. He alone is the saviour. Salvation from first to last is of the Lord. He's the all-sufficient saviour. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. He doesn't need any help from ourselves or from anything else. He doesn't need to be supported. But there's nothing we can contribute to his work in any way, shape or form. We'll either spoil it, we'll ruin it. No, no, Jesus Christ is the only saviour, the all-sufficient saviour. Peter says, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given to men whereby we must be saved. Jesus Christ alone is the saviour. Oh, thank God we don't have these men coming into our churches this morning demanding that we be circumcised in order to be truly saved. Well, I'm thankful for that anyway. But you see, this teaching of Christ plus is still with us today, isn't it? Sadly, the warning still needs to be sounded out in the churches. Things haven't changed. There's nothing new under the sun. The teaching may be more subtle today. It may not be as blatant as Christ plus circumcision. But there are many things being added to Jesus for salvation. We see it, for example, in the Church of Rome. Things haven't changed there, have they? In fact, they've got worse over history. And it's a case of faith in Christ plus baptismal regeneration to become a Christian. Or faith in Jesus plus all the traditions of Rome. And then, of course, we see this in the cults today, don't we? And there are so many of them now, aren't there? I mean, there used to be a handful and we could uh, name them. But there, there seems to be a new one coming on the scene virtually every month. We can't keep up with them. And yet if you examine their teaching, you'll find that they all have one basic uh, problem at the heart of, of each of them. One basic error. And that is that Jesus Christ is never enough. Jesus alone is not an all-sufficient saviour. No, no, it's Jesus plus the Book of Mormon. Or Jesus plus the teachings of the Watchtower. Or Jesus plus this ritual or that enlightenment, that experience. And then much closer to home, even in our evangelical circles today, there are some who are demanding that we need some extra special experience of the Holy Spirit to boost us onto a new level, a new plane of Christian experience. We need this extra thing in order to make us complete in Christ, fully-fledged Christians. It's Jesus plus this baptism of power, or Jesus plus speaking in tongues, or Jesus plus this experience and that. 
I say what it boils down to is another gospel, a distortion of the true gospel of Christ alone. You see, Jesus alone is the saviour. There is nothing else that can help us this morning. And uh, this is what Paul is teaching here in this passage. And of course, as Paul looks back over his past life, he realises that this is the very error that he himself had fallen into as a religious Jew, Saul of Tarsus. You notice how he touches upon this from verse 4. He speaks of his past life, his search for a living faith as a Jew. And he's speaking in the context of these Judaizers who were glorying and boasting in circumcision. Christ plus circumcision. And he says to them, if anyone thinks he has something of which he might have confidence and boast in the flesh, I'm also. Why? He says, well, I too was circumcised. And I was circumcised on the eighth day. The exact time that was prescribed in the law, eight days after he was born. He says, I'm from the stock of Israel. I've come from the tribe of Benjamin. Just look at my pedigree. Look at my ancestry. I've come from the tribe that produced Israel's first king, Saul, the son of Kish, the apostle's own namesake. He says also, look at, look at uh, uh, my, my upbringing. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was no half-breed, no half-Jew. No, no, he was a Hebrew son born of both Hebrew parents. His lineage was the purest of the pure, and he could fluently speak the Hebrew language. Look at my religious life, he says, concerning the law, the law of God. I was a Pharisee. He was a member of the strictest, most religious sect amongst the Jews of that time. Surely if religion could ever have opened the gates of heaven, Saul of Tarsus would have been the very first to walk right in. And look at my zeal, he says, my zeal in religion. I persecuted the church. He wouldn't stand for any error or heresy that sought to threaten the orthodox Jewish faith. And look at his moral standard, his lifestyle, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. His life was outwardly blameless. What more did he require? And yet when he met the Saviour, The risen Lord on that Damascus road, he was humbled to the dust. He saw himself as he really was and everything changed. Everything turned. And we have his great testimony here, don't we? Summed up in this statement in verse 7. He says, but. This is the great turning point. This is the great but of hope and salvation. But what things were gain to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. You see, he's using an illustration here taken from the realm of business and accountancy. I know some of you are accountants. You know all about this. The books are opened uh, with columns marked profit and loss. 
Today it's done on computer, isn't it? And uh, graphs and so on. But in Paul's days, it was the books. Profit and loss, as every business person knows. And in the one side, he piles up all the credits, all the positives, all the things he had going for him as a religious Jew, all the things that he was once relying upon to make him right with God and to give him brownie points for heaven. He piles them up, doesn't he? His race, his ritual, his religion, his respectability, one on top the other. And then, as it were, he puts a line through them all. He crosses them out. And he says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. And I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and do count them as dung, as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul is just like that merchant, isn't he, Uh, in our Lord's parable, the one who was looking for beautiful pearls. And Paul, like this man, was a pearl collector, He has all these lovely pearls in his collection, moral, religious, ecclesiastical pearls. He's proud of them. He boasts about them. He glories in them. And then one day out of the blue, he comes across another pearl, the likes of which he has never seen before. And he's absolutely captivated by its beauty, its glory, its delight. He must have it. He freely acknowledges that his whole collection is nothing but rubbish in comparison. And so he freely relinquishes it all that he may gain Christ, the one pearl of superlative price. You see, that's conversion, isn't it? That's being fully turned. It's what that great preacher of the Scotland in the 19th century, Thomas Chalmers, once described as the expulsive power of a new affection. I love that. What a wonderful description of conversion. The expulsive power of a new affection. You see, when the love of Christ comes in, then the love of self and everything else evaporates. It's a love for Jesus that is so great that there is nothing in the whole world that can possibly compare to it. And Paul could now sing with the hymn writer, Now none but Christ can satisfy. No other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus found in thee. Oh, friend, this morning, what are you trusting in? What are you relying upon for your salvation, your spiritual standing, your hope of heaven? Is it Jesus plus? Is it faith in Christ plus baptism, plus your church membership, plus Christian service? Are you relying on the fact that you were brought up in a Christian home? You've had godly ancestors. You're relying upon your upbringing, your race, your culture, your religion. Are you you trusting in your religious works? Are you trusting in the fact that you serve in the local church? Are you trusting in all these things, any of these things? 
Or can we simply say with Paul this morning, I count everything loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God by faith. God forbid, says Paul, Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should boast, that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Such then is the danger of which Paul warns. But then secondly, you'll notice he turns from the past to the present. From the danger of self-reliance and confidence to the devotion that Christ now inspires. And he says in verse 10, that I may know him. Now we have seen that Paul was writing that 30 years after his uh, conversion on the Damascus Road. And yet even though these three decades have now passed, his obsessive longing and desire and aspiration was exactly the same. He says, I want to know Jesus, that I may know him. Clearly, he's not referring to some intellectual, theoretical knowledge, merely knowing certain truths and things about Jesus Christ. No, no. He says, I want to know him. You see, friends, it's a knowledge which is personal, experiential. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ where he is real to us and where we are conscious of his daily presence. Paul longs to know his saviour in a deeper, sweeter and more intimate way. I think the hymn writer sums it up beautifully in that great hymn we've sung this morning, William Gadsby, Immortal Honours. Do you remember that verse, how he prays? Oh, that my soul could love and praise him more. His beauties trace, his majesty adore. Live near his heart, upon his bosom lean. Obey his voice and all his will esteem. That I may know him. But you'll notice Paul doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't leave it at that. But he goes on and adds to it. You'll notice he uses the conjunction and twice in this one verse. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Now, friends, it's vital that we don't go to our homes this morning thinking to ourselves that Paul is referring to three separate things here. No, no, they're all one and the same. They go together hand in hand. You cannot separate them at all. They hang together as one. 
You see, Paul is not using the word and in the sense of in addition to, but really in the sense of I.E., an explanation, that is. And so I think we could truthfully translate this particular verse as that I may know him, that is, the power of his resurrection, that is, may share his sufferings. And so Paul tells us here this morning in the first place that knowing Jesus Christ in this greater and intimate way will mean knowing the power, the power of his resurrection. Now what does Paul mean by that? Well, he's not just referring to knowing the resurrection as an historical fact, an event that took place in Jerusalem many years ago when Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Father. No, no, he's referring to our present experience as Christian believers. He's talking about the very power of the risen Lord that is now working in the hearts and minds of every one of God's people to make us more like him. Do you remember how Paul mentions this in his prayer for the Ephesians? There's two prayers, aren't there? Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. If you consider Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, you'll remember he goes on to ask that we may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Friends, have you ever stopped to consider and imagine the power that was needed to raise a dead man to life? And not only to raise him from the dead, but also to seat him At God's right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Think for a moment of those great NASA rockets that are sent up into space. See that rocket on the launch pad. Have you considered the power that is needed to raise those rockets from earth to heaven. It's incredible, isn't it? Phenomenal. You see it on your TV screens. The countdown, five, four, three, two, one. Suddenly there's ignition and the fires begin to explode. The engines come to life and the power that is expended lifts that huge rocket up into the ether. Well, Paul tells us this morning that that power pales into insignificance in the light of the power of Christ's resurrection that is working in your heart and mine this morning. It's a power that has raised us already from spiritual death and brought us into newness of life in Jesus Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. It's a new life, a new life in him. The power of the resurrection is indeed a saving power, a resurrecting power. But thank God it's also a sanctifying power. 
a transforming power. There's a beautiful example of this in uh, the first volume of the biography of that great preacher of the 20th century, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. During his first pastorate in Aberavon in uh, South Wales, uh, there was a a notorious character in the town uh, by the name of William Thomas. And uh, William Thomas was notorious as a sinner. Everybody knew William Thomas. He was the drunkard. At this stage, he was about 73 years of age. He was a drunkard. And he was a foul-mouthed individual, a blasphemer. And women and children would keep right away from William Thomas. They wanted nothing to do with him. One Sunday afternoon, William Thomas was in the local workingmen's club, drowning his sorrows in his beer. When he overheard two men speaking at the bar... And one turned to the other and he said, have you heard about this new preacher that's come to our town? He's a doctor, you know, Dr. Lloyd-Jones. He was a famous Harley Street specialist. And now he's come to our little working town and he's preaching and telling people that no one is too sinful to be saved. That no one is beyond the scope of God's saving love and power. And you know, William Thomas's ears pricked up at this. He thought, could there be hope for a sinner, a degenerate like me? Well, a great battle went on in his heart for some weeks. But eventually he was given the courage to go to the Sunday evening service. He walked in, he sat down in a seat, and one of the members of the church came over and kindly sat with him and made him feel a little bit uh, 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 more at home. And as the service took place, Dr. Lloyd-Jones was preaching the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. And as William Thomas heard about this wonderful saviour and his saving love, suddenly his heart was sovereignly opened and salvation entered in. And he went out that night a new man. William Thomas was gone. A new life had begun. But you know, William Thomas had a big problem. And that is that for 73 years, the only vocabulary he knew was swear words. It was ingrained in his nature, in his speech. And however much he tried to clean up his vocabulary, he he failed again and again. These these words would slip out uh, and, and he would be grieved greatly and he would be so overburdened. And he would feel such a wretch. And he felt too embarrassed even to go and see his pastor about this and to seek prayer. Well, he struggled on for several weeks. And then everything came to a head one particular morning. He got up out of bed. His wife had put out his clothes for the next morning. What a gracious woman she must have been. What a lovely wife. Not even my wife does that. And... uh, Anyway, he put on his clothes and he was looking around for his socks. Have you ever had that experience? He couldn't find his socks anywhere. He's rummaging through the drawers, searching high and low. No socks anywhere. And so in his exasperation, he hollows down the stairs to his wife. Wife, where are my blank socks? I can't find the blank things anywhere. 
And as soon as these swear words left his lips, he felt in despair. He cast himself on the bed, helplessly and hopelessly. He cried out, O God, have mercy upon me, a sinner, that I can't even ask for a pair of socks without this filthy talk. Lord, he said, cleanse my tongue, cleanse my lips. And you know, the Lord did so. It was sudden. He got up off that bed and he knew that something had happened. And from that moment on until his dying day, a swear word, a profanity, never left his lips again. What do you think of that? Glorious, isn't it? Maybe you're thinking, well, it doesn't always happen like that, does it? And you're right, it doesn't. At conversion, there are many sins that just fall away from us. And they're no problem at all. But there are some sins that cling to us still. Besetting sins. And they take a lifetime of mortification and sanctification to overcome. And we won't be free from sin in our lives until that day when we see Jesus face to face. And we shall see him and we shall be like him. But at the present time we struggle with sin. There is a battle going on, the flesh and the spirit. But you know, it can happen, and it did happen in the case of William Thomas, because Jesus Christ is such an almighty saviour. He is mighty to save, strong to deliver. He's come this morning not to save us in our sins, but to save us from our sins. It's salvation not only from the guilt and the penalty of sin but also salvation from the enslaving, reigning power of sin. And ultimately it will be salvation from the very presence of sin. Yes, he breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. Knowing Jesus Christ in this deeper, intimate way will mean knowing more and more of the power, the power of his resurrection. That power to strengthen us, that power to enable us to daily overcome sin and temptation. That we might fight the good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life. That we may know victory over the world, the flesh and the devil. And that we may endure to the end and be eternally saved. That I may know him. That is the power of his resurrection. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't leave it there. But he goes on and adds something finally to it. And may share his sufferings. We don't like that one, do we? Maybe you were hoping I would stop at the end of the power of his resurrection. That's glorious. That's victory, isn't it? That's triumphant. That's all positive. But sharing his sufferings? Well, that sounds injurious, doesn't it? That sounds painful. We don't want that one. We shy away from it. This seems negative. But you know, if that's what you're thinking this morning, you would be entirely wrong. In fact, it's just 
as encouraging and positive as the former. Because notice, it's not our sufferings that Paul refers to here. It's his suffering. His suffering. And notice, it's the sharing. The sharing in his sufferings. And the word he uses there is that lovely Greek word koinonia. Fellowship. You see, what Paul is literally saying here is that when you and I suffer as a Christian in this world, as we will and must, because the servant is not above his Lord, as we suffer in this world, we never suffer alone. There is one who is with us in the midst of the suffering. One who is with us when we go through the storm, when we go through the flames. One like unto the Son of Man. We have fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings. What could be more glorious, more wonderful than that? I think there's a perfect uh, illustration of this, what Paul is talking about in the martyrdom of those two Margarets of Scotland back in the 17th century known as the Wigtown Martyrs. Uh, in the 17th century, the king demanded that all people should worship in the Episcopal Church, according to the king, as he was the head of that church. But there were many believers in Scotland in the 17th century that wanted to worship according to their conscience, according to the Bible, not according to the king. And so they refused. And they began to continue to meet in secret, to have their secret meetings. And many of these meetings were broken up by the soldiers and the king's dragoons. And uh, they were carried away, many for imprisonment, some for execution. There were two Margarets taken from the Wigtown area of Scotland. Margaret McLaughlin, Margaret Wilson. And uh, the soldiers took them down to Solway Firth, this big bay. And they waited till the tide was out. And then the soldiers set up two stakes, one further out into the bay, the other nearer the beach. They took the older Margaret McLaughlin, 63 years of age, and they tied her to the furthest stake. And then they took Margaret Wilson. She was just a teenager. And they tied her to the nearer stake with the hope that when she saw her colleague suffering, she would recant. Well, the soldiers watched. The crowds gathered in huge numbers. The tide began to come in. Soon the waters were up to Margaret McLaughlin's waist, then her chest, then her neck. She didn't utter a word. She was like her saviour in suffering. A lamb led to the slaughter and uh, mute before her accusers. But then the waves came over her head and her body seemed to writhe and there seemed to be a wrestling going on in the waters. And the soldiers began to look and mock and laugh and they pointed at young Margaret Wilson and they said, what do you think of your friend now? And Margaret Wilson, just 18 years of age, a teenager, uttered these immortal words. Think, she said. I think I see Christ wrestling there. Think ye that we are sufferers? 
Nay, it is Christ in us, for he sends none of warfare, which they must fight alone. What a testimony. What a statement of faith. She saw something that no one else could see that day. The words may be old-fashioned, but you get the gist of it. I see Christ wrestling there. Do you think that we are the ones who are suffering? No, it is Jesus Christ in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. She was enjoying the fellowship of Christ in these sufferings. So knowing Jesus in this personal, intimate way will mean knowing the power of his resurrection on the one hand and the fellowship of his sufferings on the other. But maybe there is someone here and you're thinking to yourselves, well, all this is well and good for someone like the Apostle Paul because he was this mighty Christian, wasn't he? He was caught up into the third heaven. He had amazing experiences. And this may be all right for the great heroes of Scottish history, the Wigtown martyrs of the 17th century. But you say, could this be our experience this morning? Could this be true of ordinary Christian believers like us in Bexley Heath in 2024? And the answer, friends, is our most emphatic, yes, yes. Let me close with this illustration. Dr. Jim Packer once told a story about an elderly Christian lady by the name of Mabel. And she was uh, 89 years of age. And uh, she was living in a part of America for the past 25 years. She had laid in a bed in a nursing home in America. Uh, Unable to walk, her body was racked now with disease and cancer and pain. Uh, She was totally blind. She was becoming increasingly deaf. Helpless and hopeless, she lay there day after day after day, 25 years. A Christian man went to visit her one day. He sat by her bedside and he said to her, now tell me, Mabel, what is it that you think about What occupies your mind as you lay here night and day with nothing to do? Oh, she said with a big smile on her face, I think about Jesus. And he said to her, but but what do you think about Jesus? She said, I think about how very good he's been to me. Do you know, she said, as I look back over my long life, He's been extraordinarily good to me, you know. People in this home, they don't understand me. They think I'm mad. They think I'm crazy. They don't understand my position. They think I'm just old, decrepit Mabel. But she said, I don't care. She said, I would rather have Jesus. Do you know, he's all the world to me. What a testimony. You see, that's not Paul the Apostle, is it? Caught up to the third heaven. That's not the great heroes of Scottish history, the Wigtown martyrs. That's just plain, ordinary, decrepit Mabel. 
And yet it's the same thing, isn't it? The same experience. The same magnificent obsession. Oh, friends, may we be able to raise such a testimony for Christ in our day and in our generation. May we have that same longing and desire in this year of 2024 to know him. Because knowing him will mean knowing the power of his resurrection and sharing in his suffering. May God grant it so. May Jesus be all the world to us for his glory. Amen. Amen.